Hello, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Maggie Weiland, and I'm the director of the Entertainment Commission. On behalf of my entire staff and commission, welcome to San Francisco's 11th annual virtual nightlife and entertainment summit. Thank you so much for being here today. I wanna to give a very special thanks to Manny Yukushiel, who owns and, and runs a civic gathering space called Manny's in the intermission and has pivoted his in-person programming to be virtual since the shelter in place started. Manny, thank you for hosting us today. And thank you to Sam Favela who works with Manny and is managing the technology for this year's summit. Something that we could definitely not do on our own. I also want to thank all of my commissioners, including Ben Blyman, Dory Camino, Dave Falzon, Laura Thomas, Stephen Lee, and Al Perez, who did the graphics for our event today. Thank you, Al. Uh, my commissioners are true thought partners in this work. And thank you to my wonderful staff, Caitlin, Dylan, Crystal, Jordan, Tony, and Mike for their unwavering support of this community. This past December, I was able to see all of your faces in person at our holiday party, and it was so wonderful. That night, I talked about all of the incredible progress our commission had made in the previous year, and we celebrated the fact that entertainment and nightlife's annual economic impact in San Francisco had increased by $3 billion since 2010, generating a total of $7.3 billion annually for this city. A lot has changed since that night. COVID-19 has dramatically impacted life in San Francisco and across the world. Today, we will hear from local government and industry leaders about the latest in San Francisco's response to this pandemic. And we will discuss the impacts to date on the local nightlife and entertainment industry. We're also here today to reinforce the strength of this community. Nightlife and entertainment leaders like yourselves are strong and gritty you are risk takers, you are creative and dynamic, and you understand more than most the power of gathering. Today, we are gathered together, albeit virtually, to share in the currency of this unique and challenging moment, and to hopefully learn from and lean on one another. I miss my permit holders and seeing all of you in person, both at our businesses and at City Hall. I miss our entertainment commission hearings and I miss our open door policy at City Hall. If I could see you all right now, I'd probably see hundreds of my favorite San Franciscans. When I took this role, I believed in an open door policy. I wanted to take down all of the perceived barriers of getting an entertainment permit. And here we are in week 10 of this shelter in place and just please know that I still feel this way and will continue to advocate for you and lead with the same principles I had when I took this position. Thank you all for being here today and tuning in to these discussions. And thank you to all of our speakers and panelists for participating in this important event. I just wanted to go through some quick housekeeping items before we get started today. First, today's summit will be recorded. Second, as an attendee of this Zoom webinar, your face and voice will not be seen or heard unless you're a panelist. So if you have questions during the Q&A portions of our two panels, I encourage you to submit them using the Q&A icon at the bottom of your Zoom toolbar. Third, you can view today's agenda on our Eventbrite registration page, which is linked on our website, as well as our social media accounts. And finally, we will end today's summit in true EC fashion by hosting a happy hour. The virtual happy hour is hosted on a separate Zoom with the, when the summit programming concludes. 
that link will be displayed at the end of today's event. And you can also find it on our Eventbrite page or in your registration email. Thank you in advance to McCondre, a bar and restaurant in Russian Hill, and owners Aaron Paul and Jake Roberts for hosting our virtual happy hour. Aaron will be playing music to get the dance party going, and for this Zoom, you'll all be on mute so that you can enjoy the music, but your faces will actually be visible that time, and you'll be able to use group and direct chat to talk to each other. So without further ado, I am very honored to introduce our first speaker of the day, my boss, and let me tell you, she is the boss, mayor of the city and county of San Francisco, London Breed. Looks like she's coming on. Yes. Can you see me and hear me? Yeah, hey. Hey, Maggie. <laughs> Thanks for How coming. I'm good. Thanks for being here. Good. Well, your hair, your hair looks good. Thank you. I curled it for the first time in a couple months today for you. <laughs> nice. nice. Well, good afternoon. You want me to get started? Yeah, get going. Thank okay. you. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how you guys are going to party with all the music and stuff and the little virtual time that you're going to have. I know this is tough for all of us, especially in nightlife, because, uh, you know, really coming together, hanging out with one another and talking face to face. It's why we enjoy our nightlife community so much. And good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm glad to be speaking at the Entertainment Commission's 11th Annual Summit in support of our local nightlife and entertainment industry. And as you know, this year's summit looks a little bit different than last year, and fingers crossed that uh, we'll be able to get together next year uh, in person. And although we are physically apart, it's incredible that this community is still able to come together to share ideas and really lift up each other so that we can emerge from these challenging times stronger than ever before. Uh, the entertainment industry is facing unprecedented challenges due to the coronavirus. And I know so many of you are like, when are we gonna open? When are we gonna open? I'm dying to open myself. I want to really acknowledge how difficult this has been and, and continues to be for our small business owners and employees, uh, especially your employees and your patrons and the people who love and miss your businesses. I know there's so many community people uh, that just can't wait uh, until you reopen. We know that the coronavirus has really taken away your ability to gather face-to-face -face over a meal on the dance floor, at the bar, and it's impacted you know, our experiences around enjoying art and music and culture amongst our peers. I mean, something as simple as, you know, hanging out and hearing great music together is, is now uh, put on pause. But this pandemic has not taken away our identity, our ability to adapt, to change, and to demonstrate resilience as a community and as a city. As you can see from this summit, uh, adapting to a happy hour afterwards uh, with music and just looking at all of your faces online is something um, that I think all of you will enjoy. Uh, we've seen our small business owners rise to the occasion over the past two months, changing their entire business models so that they can continue to serve the community while protecting public health. In fact, in ordering from some of the restaurants, they do really cute drinks where you can buy drinks from restaurants that they make and they put them in these little jars all screwed in or whatever. It's, it's very creative and very fun. Um, despite the economic odds, our, our small businesses 
are still putting their community first and adapting. We, we have seen uh, businesses supporting one another and serving those needs all while they, all while they are struggling to make in meets, like even starting GoFundMe accounts for their employees, which has been uh, pretty incredible. Our entertainment industry is fierce, and I know that this industry of all industries will do everything it can to, to survive. Uh, the cultural loss we are feeling right now will not last forever. What makes San Francisco unique really is our ability to get creative and to lift each other up um, in times of need. Our culture and our identity is what's gonna get us through this. Uh, the whole world is watching San Francisco right now. We have made headlines across the country and we've been cited as a national model in fighting the pandemic. We are doing this in partnership with our public health experts including Dr. Aragon, who you will hear from shortly. Our priority is the health and safety of all San Franciscans, and I'm proud of how this city has come together to respond to this crisis. It's because of all of you uh, that we are now seeing a small decline in the curve. Our total case rate is low, our death rate is low, and we are planning for our economic recovery. We were called a national model in how we shut things down, and now, we will be called a national model for how we open things back up. And our nightlife is such a critical part of that. I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to going to get my hair done and my nails and going to our fitness salons and our studios and our workplaces. And I heard some people say, I don't go to church, but if churches open up, I'm going to church. Um, I can't wait to get to back to some of your establishments. I'm personally excited to really sit down and have a meal with a friend or go hear some live music or watch the Warriors, Giants, or Niners play. Most importantly, to see everyone in person. We are gonna get to that day. We're getting back there slowly, cautiously, safely, but we will get there. And so I wanna thank you all for your patience while we're going through this. It's because of you that we are seeing the curve flatten and, and, and decline. It's because of your commitment uh, to continuing to hang in there while we're dealing with this real challenge. It's what makes San Francisco so special. I'm continually, I'm continued, uh, my commitment is to continue to support uh, the Entertainment Commission and the industry in addressing these challenges and making the city we all love shine. You are an important part of doing that. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, enjoy uh, your time, the summit, and enjoy your happy hour. Get up, get up and dance and listen to the music and feel free. Trust me, it'll make you feel better. Thanks again, Maggie. All right, I think I'm off mute now. You're off mute. <laughs> Thank you, such weird times. It was an honor having you here with us today. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, thank you. Um, next up on our summit agenda is the city and county's health officer and director of the Population Health Division at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, Dr. Tomas Aragon. Dr. Aragon will provide us an update on San Francisco's efforts to protect community health. So let's see if we can bring him on. Okay. There Hi, we go. Aragon. Thanks for joining us today. I'll let you take it from here. 
Okay, um, every, so I'm here. Um, my name is Dr. Tomas Aragon. I'm the health officer of San Francisco. Right now, I'm here at the Emergency Operations Center at the Moscone Center. I come here every single day, um, and everyone has been working incredibly hard in, in across the whole city. So I've, I've been very, very, very grateful. And first of all, I just want to just uh, tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm a, I'm a native San Franciscan. And so for me, this has been, this has been a, a really difficult situation, but also a situation where I'm, I'm proud of how much we've been able to accomplish. What I tell folks is that San Francisco dodged the bullet. We did an amazing job. Just to give you an idea of how successful we were, um, if you compare San Francisco to a place like New York City in terms of um, while one death is too many, um, we know that San Francisco compared to New York City, our death rate or mortality rate is 35 times, New York's is 35 times higher than ours. Los Angeles is four times higher than ours. The Big Cities Health Coalition did an evaluation of how many um, hospitalizations were impacted. So we prevented over 38,000 hospitalizations and over 3,800 deaths. Um, it's important to appreciate, had, had we experienced all those hospitalizations, we would be much worse off today than we are right now. Um, we would still have that we would still have the shutdown, but we'd have all the economic consequences of, of all those all those deaths. So we in that sense, we have we have done an incredible job. We're now in a transition phase. The hospitalizations have gone down. The number of cases have gone down and we're beginning to open up uh, the economy just today. Um, uh, curbside pickup for over uh, close to 95% of retail businesses is now open. Um, the other part that's open is uh, the manufacturing and warehouse supply chain to all those businesses is now opening. And in the coming weeks, you will begin to see more and more economic activity. Uh, Carmen Chu and Ben Rosenfield are leading a economic recovery task force that's really taken over looking at the, at the, at the business. And it's going to look at everything, everything ac uh, across the city under a framework that's coming from Governor Newsom at the state where they have staged out stage one, stage two. We're currently in the beginnings of stage two. We're going to take that larger framework and within that framework, we're going to evaluate what we can open up in a safer way and start and start with that. And as long as we continue to do well in terms of our hospitalization and number of cases, then we will continue to open up. So everyone is very committed to, to continuing to move this forward. What is also true is that we're asking everybody as we move forward, we ask, we're asking the, the general public to think of three things. As we move forward and we begin to um, open up, we ask them to really continue to focus on physical distancing, face coverings, and what you will see over time is we want people to get tested. Test, 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 even if you have no symptoms, because that will be the backbone of our, the foundation of our surveillance system that we're really going to need to keep a track on this epidemic. If we have any issues, we want to investigate it and mitigate, mitigate any problems that we have. Our goal is to move forward, not to move backwards. And the only way we're going to do that is to continue to be really rigorous in terms of our public health um, activities. So those are the key comments that I, I wanted to make. I'm sure there's um, many, many questions. And I'm going to turn it back over to Maggie, unless there's any questions folks have for me. 
Maggie, was that okay? Thanks, Dr. Aragon. Um, I will uh, let you know if there's any questions. I okay. can you directly afterward, but I don't see any in our Q&A box. So Great. thanks for joining us from the ELC and thanks for everything that you're doing for the city. Um, all right, well, let's see what's up next. Now we have our uh, first moderator of the day who's about to come on board for our first panel of the day, the impact of COVID-19 on the local economy. So to introduce our panelists, we have Manny Cushiel. Hi, Manny. As Hi. Hi, there you are. As I mentioned earlier, and I believe many of you know, Manny owns and runs a civic engagement space in the mission called Manny. Manny, we're really happy to have you here with us today, not only as a co-host of the summit, thank you, but as a seasoned moderator and leader of civic discussions. So I will let you take it from here and introduce everyone else. Thank you so much, Maggie, and thanks to the oodles and oodles of people who are tuned in right now. Um, really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get this show on the road. My name is Manny, and as Maggie mentioned, I own Manny's Admission, and I'm honored, deeply honored to co-host this Entertainment Commission's first virtual summit. And no biggie, the panel that I'm moderating is called The Impact of COVID-19 on the Local Economy. Right, okay, a doozy. Let's start. I'm first gonna tell you about our panelists and then we're gonna bring them on. So we've got Naomi Kelly. She is the city administrator of San Francisco. And in this role, she oversees a whole lot of things including the city's general service agency, which consists of more than 25 city agencies, including the Entertainment Commission. Then we've got Joaquin Torres, who is the director of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, which works to support workforce development, business development, neighborhood economic development, as well as film, small business, and development planning. So all of us on this call, he's involved in what we're doing. And then finally, the ever-colorful Ted Egan, who is the city's chief economist, and he directs the Office of Economic Analysis in the city's controller's office. So we have Naomi, Joaquin, and Ted. Are we all here? Familia! <laughs> Friends! <laughs> Hi, it's like a How reunion. Hi, <laughs> Manny. We're all together! <laughs> <laughs> we, I had individual conversations with each of you three over the last two months, and it's so nice to see your glistening faces. It's we, always fun to be. Some, we were hoping to see some Bronzino in the background, Manny. No, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in my little um, mop closet office at Manny's now, not in my kitchen. So you get to see, we're back, we're back in the space. So that closet fun. is too small, Manny. I know, the door is right here and then the wall is right here. So this is literally, it, it's like a panic room, but I actually like it. We have got some crystals around me and it's fine. <laughs> um, we don't have a whole lot of time for pleasantries. This is a really tight schedule. So family, let's just get right into it. It's 15 minutes total for the three of us and then five minutes, or 20 minutes for the three of us and five minutes for questions. So what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna ask a couple questions for each of you, and then we're gonna see if anyone has individual questions, and then y'all can keep going over saving the city or whatever it is you do, okay? Naomi, are you drinking Earl Grey tea? Of course. Good, okay, good. I'm, I should have had my Earl Grey with me. Amazing, great. <laughs> well, let's start with you, Ted Egan. Hi, how you Hi. doing, Clem? Good, good to see you. Um, so I have a couple questions for you. First is, what do we know about how COVID-19 has already impacted the local economy? Um, it's been a very severe shock to the local economy. Uh, 
about 18% of the labor force of San Francisco has filed for unemployment in the past two months. Wow. We've never had an unemployment rate that high in San Francisco for as long as we've kept those records. Whoa. How long have we kept those records? Um, since the 60s. Holy moly. 18% is what you said? 18% in two months. Wow. 18% is a good luck number in, in Judaism, but this is not a good luck number uh, right now. So there you go. What do we know about the impacts of COVID-19 on nightlife to date? The only real information we have about specific industries comes from national data, but that national data is not pretty. Uh, if you look at industries like arts, nightlife, restaurants, bars, their number of jobs in April dropped 50% in one month. Holy uh, basically, no other industry was hit as hard as these industries, maybe clothes stores or a couple of other types of retail. But basically, that's half of the entire industry across the United States shut down like that. Yikes. Okay, so that's kind of what, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the impacts have been, excuse me, till now. But what do we know about the future? I mean, what, what trends can we, can we think about or what, what can we predict about how COVID-19 might infect both the overall economy of the city and, um, sorry, in general, the overall economy and the nightlife sector moving forward? I, I think it has to do with the combination of, of what's the national recovery look like and then what is our local policy response look like. Um, in the long term, I'm very optimistic about nightlife in San Francisco. I mean, people are talking about all kinds of big changes in the city after COVID and maybe won't, people won't commute to offices anymore or maybe people will shop differently. I don't think anybody is saying like Zoom happy hours are going to be the future of socialization. Right. So someday all of this pent up demand of people wanting to go out and do stuff is going I was to fill up our nightlife spaces again. What um, I was going to say was, sorry, go ahead. I, the real question is, is how do we get to that stage and how long does it take? Right. It's interesting you bring up the work from home thing, because if a lot of these companies say you don't have to commute down to the South Bay, daytime, I don't know, that, that might actually be helpful to the city's economy in some long-term way. So how, how has all this impacted the city and what, how do you think it's going to impact it uh, in the future, in the, in the kind of moving forward? I mean, I'm just looking at what the, the economic forecasters are saying. Everybody knows we're in the worst time um, really, there's never been a quarter that's as bad as what we're going through right now. But on the other hand, almost all of the forecasters are saying by the end of this year, we're going to have growth that's faster than normal. Now, where they're really different is how long is it going to take to where we got back before? And there's a range of people saying maybe the end of 2021 or maybe a year or two after that. Um, I think the issue for nightlife is what can we do to get nightlife safely operating? How do we get as a city, you know, the caseload and everything else to the point where these, these businesses can, um, can operate? Because compared to the risk profile of some other industries, they're not great. Mm -hmm. um, but like, as I say, over the long term, um, I really think that there's no industry that's kind of more rooted in the life and the people of San Francisco, and that, that there's more reason to be optimistic about it. Okay, thank you. Those are my questions for you. Folks are tuning in. If you have questions for Ted Egan, the chief economist of the city, start typing them in now. Let's go to Joaquin Torres, the director of OEWD. Joaquin, I feel like I've had so many conversations with you over the last <laughs> couple of weeks. 
Um, thank you for joining us right now. So let's just talk about what the available resources and relief currently is for the city and specifically for the nightlife sector. So what has the city strategy been for responding to the economic losses that are being experienced by businesses and workers, including the nightlife sector? Certainly, yeah. And, and again, thank you so much, Manny. And it really is a pleasure to be on, uh, most especially with the minds that are sharing the panels on the Zoom screen that we have right now. I, I just, for everyone who's out there who thinks that government is stale um, and is not proactive or not energetic, I can tell you that in the multiple density of meetings and conversations that have been going on, Naomi and Ted have been there to talk about all of the dense, complex issues that are facing uh, our business community, our cultural community, and our city right now. And, and you should be, I hope you know how much pressure is, is resting on, on these individuals and all of us collectively in the city because there is so much need. Whether you think about the federal resources, the state resources, or the local resources, and then also philanthropic resources. The main strategy has been to maximize on every single opportunity, coordinate them, make them easily accessible and available from loans to grants, to connections with your lending institutions, to connections with alternative lending institutions, to understanding on the ground what the real needs are, not only by business sector, not only by the nightlife sector, but also by community to community to making sure that everyone is being addressed where they're at. I think that's been one of the most important parts of, for us in doing this work. So again, thinking about all the individual workers, 63,000 workers in the nightlife entertainment industry, $7.3 billion worth of economic activity, severely impacted as Ted was saying. Um, uh, and then our, our role is making sure that these groups are aware while they're waiting, while you're all waiting, uh, to find out at what phase will we be in again to realize all that pent up demand that where people want to be able to enjoy their cultural life again, uh, of which nightlife entertainment is essential and a core component um, that we keep on driving in that direction. But making sure that these institutions, these organizations, these lovely neighborhood joints, city joints, um, get the respect and the resources that they deserve. Advocating at the federal level, advocating at the state level, focusing on workers, focusing on resources for businesses. Got it. So what, if you're a nightlife uh, owner, small business owner right now on this call, what are the current or upcoming relief programs that you think, Joaquin, are relevant for nightlife business owners and their employees um, that you're aware of? C certainly. So I, I think it depends on the intricacies of the individual business about whether a grant is something that can hold someone or whether it's an individual loan uh, that can hold someone. The most uh, favorable, uh, depending on the accessibility currently of the payroll protection program loan um, and all the intricacies that are still being worked out right now at the federal level um, has been one of the most important loans should be someone be able to get them. Um, also making sure that your workforce who may be impacted. We started a paid sick leave program, workers and families first that was available to individuals. Mm -hmm. We're working on making our philanthropic dollars available to impacted employees who should not be working, but are nervous about working mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that they can be protected uh, during this time. And then for our undocumented population or those who don't have access to unemployment. Mm -hmm. Again, remember unemployment used to be 450 a week. Uh, they added $600 a month, uh, $600 a week on top of that, providing some pretty robust benefits if you can get them. Uh, if you're not able to because you don't qualify, what resources will be available for you? So we've known that those resources for those communities are available at the state level. We saw some of those rolled down just last week. Um, uh, those funds made available 
at the city level through our city partners. Uh, and you can find all that information on our website, oewd.org, whether you're a business, a worker, or a nonprofit. Super easy to remember, oewd.org. Let's do a quick involve the audience. So for everyone that's tuning in, could you please raise your hand if you work or own some kind of small business or you work within the entertainment or nightlife field? Raise your hand if that applies to you. We're gonna let everyone take a second to do that. Okay, a lot of people. Now, raise your hand, keep going, okay. We have over 200 people that either work in the entertainment industry or um, own. Now, raise your hand again if you've received some kind of aid, whether it's federal, state, or local, whether it's unemployment or your business's rate. How many of those people that work in the industry have also received aid? So we had about 250 people who work in the industry. I don't know if I'm supposed to say the amount of numbers. And about 150 have received some kind of aid. So there's still about 100 of you out there that need to get some kind of support. Joaquin's your guy, oewd.org. <laughs> Um, and then just the, the two other components, and I know that Naomi will, will talk about this, just this laser-like focus on reopening. Yes. And making sure, I mean, we were very encouraged to hear uh, Tomas Aragon, our, our health officer, say, you'll see more economic activity in the coming weeks. Um, we weren't certain about that in the beginning based on the health um, considerations that were had. Um, but I know that our focus on reopening and then also our focus on economic recovery are, are essential for us moving forward. All right, last question for you, Joaquin, Director Torres, excuse me. Oh, I'm Joaquin, Manny, I'm Joaquin. Okay, okay. How can the city work to further support nightlife moving forward? Um, you're seeing that, that happening right now through the Recovery Task Force. Um, you have the head of your Entertainment Commission, Ben Blyman, who's sitting on that. You have um, representatives from theater, from live performances, from cultural institutions, so that they can be talking about the individual ways in, in which recovery and going beyond the status quo uh, as we come out of COVID-19 um, is something that we can take seriously and innovatively and ensuring that the business community knows, the nightlife entertainment community knows that there is a government that wants to be responsive to your needs. Uh, I, I think that is one of the most salient points to make use of the survey that's out there uh, that I know Naomi will, will, will talk about, the connection to your representatives on the task force, ensuring that your voices, your priorities are being heard. Nothing is too simple. Nothing is too granular. Every little bit of it matters right now, especially right now, because there's so much information flying at all of us, and we really need the information. Awesome. Thank you, Director Joaquin Torres. Thank you, if you have questions for Joaquin, please type them into the Q&A place now, uh, specifically about the Office of Economic and Workforce Development and their work. Naomi! Manny! Hi! <laughs> Hello. Good to see you. Oh. I have just two real simple questions for you. Just the, just the softballs for you, okay? Of course. What is the city's strategy in terms of planning for economic recovery? A <laughs> real softball. Real softball. It's, a, it's a very complex strategy, but one that we're very excited to be working with uh, all of you who are here tuning into this summit today. Um, there's an economic recovery task force that you've heard Dr. Aragon talk about and Joaquin talk about that's chaired by Carmen Chu, our assessor, our treasurer, Jose Cisneros, uh, the president of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, uh, Rodney Fong, and Rudy Gonzalez from the Labor Council. And really, they are focused on reopening and reopening in a phasing that it will uh, be succinct with 
not spreading COVID-19, but yet reopening the economy. Um, it, we, they are very focused on sustaining and reviving local business employment, mitigating the economic hardships already affecting most of you. And how we do this, as Joaquin said, is by developing and sharing a framework on how we make decisions about reopening. Um, you kind of heard Dr. Aragon talk about a risk-based approach to phasing in the businesses. It's kind of based on what the governor had talked about on phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four. Um, and we are putting a risk-based analysis similar to that with our businesses. What businesses have low contact with people, low exposure of risk to COVID-19 versus those who, have, those who have high risk of uh, exposure to COVID-19 and high contact. And then kind of rating those businesses in between. At the same time, I'm working on a government services reopening plan and layering that together um, because there's office space, obviously, working in an office, you, you could start that up faster because you could social distance, but yet we can telecommute. So if we are metering the number of people and in, in, in reducing the mobility out there, all of us can telecommute while maybe we let another uh, small business come online to allow more people out there. So we're thinking that way, but we also wanna make sure that we're doing this safely to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and making sure that our hospital uh, beds don't start uh, being occupied with COVID-19 patients. So with that, uh, thinking through, we've already got the best practices on uh, health and safety guidelines for essential businesses on the SFGov website. Thinking through how does each sector in each industry open up safely, whether it's you know ingress and egress and choke points, social, six foot social distancing, facial covers, testing. Do you have access to testing? Do you have access to PPE? These are all things that we need to know. What are the things that, that can help you open up faster? And uh, as Joaquin had indicated, there's a survey that's gone out that getting your ideas is important. Also, what ideas as this, as we're opening up and Ted Egan had indicated this, we're all anxious to get back out to our nightlife activities. You know, I may telecommute, but I can't wait to get to a you know, go have drinks, go to Manny's, go out. Like, but what are ways that we do, what can we do in the next, you know, year or 18 months to think through what systems can we put in place and how can we think through our businesses and how can we be more innovative? Um, one thing is outdoor spaces, utilizing our outdoor spaces. If we're not going to be out on the streets in our cars, can we move outdoors? Because being outdoors is a lower risk than being indoors. I love that idea, by the way. I think it's such a great one, personally then how can we help you? Because I want my cocktail outdoors. So what can we do with ABC to help get out there? Um, only after hours will I have my cocktail for everyone who's listening. I, don't <laughs> judge you. I wouldn't judge you for an early afternoon cocktail. <laughs> yeah, so you know, those are the ideas. We need those ideas coming fast. We wanna help you think innovatively. We wanna help, we're writing new systems in place to try and make sure that we have this economy that is, a, a, you know, the nightlife is a higher risk, higher contact. What can we do innovatively to get back out there and, and see each other again? Awesome. Thank you, Naomi. And I know that the, the planning is in good hands with you. Um, I just have one more question to you, and then we're going to get to the audience questions, which is, tell me about the city's fundraising to address the COVID impact. I know the city's raising money. What's that all about? You know, how much money has been raised? And kind of tell me about the fundraising that's going on. Yes, we have a program called Give to SF. It's our COVID-19 response recovery fund that is providing San Francisco with four categories, food security, because we're hearing a lot of folks are going hungry, 
and they're getting the like, uh, gift certificates to food and making sure they get meals delivered to them. Access to housing. A lot of folks are having a hard time, if not with rent, but like insurance, utility bills. And so having funding to help with uh, keeping their, staying secure in their housing. And then uh, making sure that we are um, secure, providing resources for our workers and our small businesses. Um, and giving out uh, zero free interest small business loans through the great work of Joaquin Torres um, and making sure that we um, really help our undocumented workers because they can't access many of the federal funds that are coming down this way. Um, to date, we have a total of $26.3 million received. Yay! Yes, and it, a big, a big uh, dollar amount came in just recently from Jack Dorsey, 15 million for his hashtag start small to support undocumented, mixed status, and low-income households. So we're very excited about that. Um, and so far, we've been trying to, as soon as the money comes in, we've been trying to distribute it as fast as possible because we're hearing that people can't get access to it fast. So we've issued 9.8 million and dispersed it to city agencies that have identified programs within the buckets I talked about, food security, access to housing, and supporting uh, small businesses and workers. Nice. And again, I'm just making the announcement. Joaquin has really done a lot of that great work in making sure he's getting to those nonprofits and out. So big kudos to Joaquin Torres. Go to the city administrator, the city administrator. <laughs> I feel like this is like kind of power, not Power Rangers, but Captain Planet a little bit. And you're like, you've got like earth, wind, heart. <laughs> and it's like between the three of you, I feel like a lot of problems can get solved. So let's go to audience questions. We've got about four or five minutes of this. So we're going to try to get them real quick. First question I think is for you, Ted, from someone named God God, which is, I assume it's not God. If it is, hi, um, what is the expected unemployment rate in the next three months? And what percent do you predict to be from arts and hospitality businesses? It wouldn't surprise me if we saw 10 to 15% unemployment through September. Um, uh, and frankly, like I said before, arts entertainment is one of the hardest hit sectors. It's probably going to stay that way for that period of time. Got it. And can, from Jocelyn Kane, Ted, can you report the timeline to get back to where we were before COVID? Um, I think people's best case scenario just for the economy overall is end of next year, end of 2021. And that's like business activity to get back to full employment. You could be talking 2023, 2024. Got it. Steven Raspa, this is a question I think for Naomi or Joaquin. When do we think street fairs and outdoor events may be possible again? What population restrictions might there be or will, be, will it depend on demonstrating ability to meet safety precautions? Joaquin, you want to take that one? Uh, your team is um, leading. Yeah. I, I, I would say it's in the in the later phases of this process, especially when you're starting to look at the density of people that would be coming into that space. I mean, the moment that, that I start thinking about civic celebrations again, we know what those feel like and what those look like. As we start establishing more norms incrementally, as we begin to open up over the next few weeks, um, uh, in these very um, strategic, measured ways that we can monitor and at the same time layer in testing and tracing uh, infrastructure for ourselves, we may be able to move faster down the line, but really, we really are looking at that much, much further down the road. Got it. All right. This is a two-part question from two different people, but they're associated. One is from Chelsea, which is, what can self-employed event producers do? Um, there's some issues around receiving 
A, because you know, you're kind of you're self-employed and you're producing events and a lot it's hard because you're not producing a lot of live events these days. And then the second is Natasha asked, um, basically, what do we do for all the livelihood of all the artists who we were booking and now are not getting any bookings? You know, how do we make sure that the artist community survives these months before they can go back to making a living? Yeah, on the on the art side, I mean, that was one of the first investments that the mayor made in terms of working artists uh, funds through Naomi's organization, through the grants for the arts, um, uh, to make sure that those working artists like I used to be back in the day, um, actually have access to resources beyond just unemployment. I mean, it's, it's really it's really real, especially, you know, so, so many of us who have friends in the entertainment business who uh, were hoping that maybe the fall season would be there for them. They're seeing that it's it's not. They thought maybe the spring season would be there for them. It seems like maybe it will be, but again, a lot of question marks there. So the investment in, the, in, those, in those stipends, loans for cultural institutions makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, and then also making sure that people are going after unemployment, um, uh, just getting in there and being told no, as opposed to assuming it uh, is the most important part. They should be able to access uh, those funds. And when you're talking about around a $26 an hour unemployment uh, benefit that you're receiving, um, uh, it's something that should definitely be taken advantage of during this time. Okay, we have one minute. So I'm gonna get a real quick one in. Naomi, real quick, I know Maggie's here to shoot me off, but um, event venues, who's gonna make the decision about when they get reopened? Is that a city decision or is the state gonna be able to decide that? It will, it will be a regional decision and it'll be the city. And we're working and we're looking at the state's guidelines, but you have to remember COVID-19 is very regional. Yeah, and so we will the phasings that we're uh, that I talked about earlier. We will be looking at that using that risk-based analysis, looking at our five indicators that the health officer has published about, you know, the number of cases, our access to PPE, uh, our testing capability. I think we have to really ramp up our testing and our contract on our contract tracing, and once we get and hit those indicators, then I think the the venues will open back up. But I do I really do think they are the last in the phase. Okay, that was a question from Rick Hearns. Rick, thank you for that question. Team Captain Planet rings in. Did you know, did any of you even watch Captain Planet? Is that just going right over your head? Yeah, sorry. You know, you know the reference I'm going for. I'm definitely Heart. I feel like that was my personal person, but I had a crush on Fire, if anyone else remembers that. Fire was really attractive. Maggie, back to you. Oh, thank you all so much for being on this panel today. I know that, you know, you have a lot of other things going on. Oh, cheers, Joaquin. Thank you. See you at a real bar maybe okay. soon. Okay, bye, Ted. Um, bye, Manny. Thank bye. you. <laughs> oh, they were all so wonderful. Okay, so we're moving on to our second panel of the day, and we're right on time. I'm really proud of all of our... Uh, technology endeavors here. Uh, so our next panel of the day is called The Future of Nightlife in the COVID-19 Era and Beyond. Kind of a big deal. So I would like to introduce our moderator, Owen Thomas. Um, Owen Thomas is the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Hey, Owen. Uh, he supervises the Chronicle's business and technology coverage. Owen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm gonna to let you take it away and uh, bring on all the other panelists. Excellent, thanks for having me, Maggie. Uh, and thank you to the SFMTA for my background here. Uh, maybe we'll uh, see the boat tram out, uh, out again. 
we're here to talk about the future of nightlife. What is, uh, what is coming, what we're going to expect um, in this kind of interim ever-changing period until uh, we can really see nightlife venues open their doors again. Um, I am joined today by Ben Blyman, who's the president of the San Francisco Entertainment Commission, uh, by Julia Hartz, who is uh, the co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite, a company that is very important to the local, uh, local entertainment economy. Uh, Lynn Schwartz, who's the co-owner of Bottom of the Hill, a great music venue. And Kim Stone, who's the general manager of the very recently opened Chase Center. So thank you all for coming. And let's see, see. looks like we have Lynn and Kim and Julia and Ben, we're all here virtually. Um, so uh, if, if we could begin just uh, by going around and um, introducing um, ourselves. Um, I, of course, am at the Chronicle. We cover nightlife as a business sector. Um, and I'd like to hear kind of your role, uh, a bit more about your role in the entertainment in San Francisco. We'll begin with you. Hey, everyone. Uh, ben Blyman here. If you don't know me, I'm the president of the Entertainment Commission currently. I own a few bars in San Francisco and a dispensary. California Street Cannabis Co. up on Knob Hill. Um, I also uh, have been an advocate for nightlife for a number of years now, almost a decade. Um, I'm the founder of the San Francisco Bar Owner Alliance. We have a, more than 400 individual bar owners in a group, uh, fairly active, uh, mostly on Facebook. And I'm also of the California Music and Culture Association, which is the trade association that represents bars and nightclubs and music venues in San Francisco. Hey everyone, I'm Julia Hartz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Eventbrite. I am a Bay Area native. I grew up in Santa Cruz and we started Eventbrite in 2006 in a windowless conference room in a warehouse in Potrero Hill. And my husband and I and third co-founder are still working on the business today and uh, we live in San Francisco. All right, and Lynn, go for it. Hi, um, I'm so honored to be on this illustrious panel. Thanks for your confidence, Maggie. Um, my name is Lynn Schwarz. I am co-owner and head booker at Bottom of the Hill Nightclub, and we've been around 29 years, about to pursue legacy status, actually. Should we survive? We will survive. Um, and we've been um, hosting um, bands five to seven nights a week, um, three to four bands a night. And I started at the bottom as a cook 25 years ago. So a lot of our customers actually haven't been alive as long as I've been there. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging in with you guys. Thank you. All right, and Kim. Hi everybody, Kim Stone, general manager at Chase Center, proud home of the uh, world champion Golden State Warriors. We were only open six months and then we had to shut down, um, but we, I echo everybody else's sentiments. We, we will get through this uh, together. I've only been in the Bay Area for a year. I spent the last 13 years uh, running American Airlines Arena in Miami and went through a couple of hurricanes and MERS and SARS uh, epidemics that happened there. This is on a whole different level. Um, 
but couldn't be. I love San Francisco, have loved it since I was a kid. So when I got the opportunity to come here, I, I jumped at the chance and look forward to welcoming all of you when we get back to normal. So speaking of things not being normal, I, I, I want to start off just by kind of acknowledging the situation that we all find ourselves in. Um, you know, our, we have left uh, the 9 one Mission newsroom, which is a space that's very near and dear to our hearts. Um, and it's hard for us working from home and only having some of our reporters and photographers out there in the community. Um, how are you all holding up? Um, I feel like, you know, when a president like becomes president and they age like very quickly uh, over the course of years, like it, in Indiana Jones, when he drinks from the wrong chalice and he immediately starts to age, I feel like all of these gray beers are from, these gray hairs in my beard are from the last nine weeks. Um, I was looking pretty uh, young and sprightly before this started, but every day is an adventure, so. I'm passing yeah, uh, the bad panic attacks are over, but, um, uh, and I, I have a lovely home and with my dog and husband and mosaics and music, it's okay, but I am actually terrified for not only our economy, um, but our, and my, my business, but mostly for our employees and all of the employees out there in this, in this line of work. Lynn, I, I think it's really important to kind of have us acknowledge those feelings and talk about them. Julia, uh, it's kind of a cliche that, you know, uh, the IPO is just the beginning for a company. It's not kind of the end state for a startup, but you're really living that now. Uh, the company that, that uh, right, that was day one and now this is day zero. So who knew, you know, it's uh, it to watch some and just like, you know, um, Lynn said to, to, you know, work on a business for 15 years and then one day wake up and have the premise for that entire business to be uh, not there is surreal. So it's been, um, it's been 82 days of um, complete firefighting and we've gone through um, a lot of hardship over the last couple of months, but nothing is uh, comparable to to you know the customers and the small businesses that use Eventbrite, and so we are we are just every day buoyed by their perseverance and resilience and ingenuity and just trying to keep up. Um, on a brighter note, I guess no pun intended, I would say that the last few weeks have brought us um, some really exciting signs of of new growth of businesses and reimagining businesses to keep communities together online like we're doing right now. Um, and also just a ton of pent up demand from consumers to, to meet, you know, once it's safe again. So I try to focus on the glass half full of this uh, puzzle, but those analogies don't work, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it, it, Kim, this is not what you were envisioning for 2020 for the Chase Center, I take it. It, never in my wildest dreams. Um, can you, can you, this is what horror movies are the foundation for, uh, is something like this and, and moving Don't your family. Don't watch Contagion. Don't watch Contagion. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> that is true. So it has been uh, surreal on many levels and I want, I want to echo what Lynn said. You know, it, it it's about the staff um, getting through this and, and doing what we 
can to help them both mentally and you know financially where we can. I know there's limitations to that, um, but but it has been incredible to open um, this beautiful building and have almost 80 events and then have to just like slam on the brakes, run into a brick wall and shut it all down and, and winterize uh, the venue. You know, these are very different times, things that I've never had to do before because we always had events. Um, but we've pivoted and much like uh, Julia said, like we're just working hard and making sure that we're ready and prepared for whatever is going to come. And that's all we can do. So I think that is uh, a big part of what we want to talk about here is what is coming next. Um, what, um, how do you see your businesses adapting and, and changing? I mean, you know, for me, I've, I've seen all of these drag queens I follow on Twitter uh, doing, you know, doing Zoom and Patreon and kind of keeping that, you know, the, that nightclub experience alive virtually keeping a, connection with their fans. It's obviously not the same, but there might even be like a, a broadening out that's happening of their fan base. Is there some upside here? How should we be looking at it? And what role does, you know, do new technologies and new ways of connecting play in kind of our, our evolution from here? I could chime in and tell you what we've seen on the platform thus far. And like I said, we're, uh, you know, our, our customers who we call event creators are, are leading the way for sure. Uh, we saw online events on the platform up 2000% in April alone. And that continues to rise as people are seeking each other out online to really connect with their community, but then also to break down the geographic boundaries that usually constrained uh, a local event. Most of our customers are, again, professional small businesses that are now reaching larger global audiences. And that's a, I think that's an unlock that I don't, I don't see going away post COVID. Um, but the, it varies by format in terms of how engaging it is, you know, so you can't actually replicate being in the same room with other humans and having, and you know, creating an indelible memory together. So we firmly believe at Eventbrite that that desire to connect in person is going to really like be this voracious appetite that that brings live experiences back and venues back. Um, but we see this other part of the entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism on the platform playing out where like um, craft breweries are shipping out beer and then doing these really cool tastings, you know, now nationally. Um, and people are connecting around things that they love, mainly health and wellness, food and drink, music. Um, so I do think that there is a future where there might be this really interesting hybrid business model that allows for, um, for venues and for event promoters to open up the aperture of who they can commune around their, you know, their music or their passion. Um, and I think, again, that's, that's a really interesting green shoot for the future. That is interesting. So Kim and Lynn, you're, you're, you know, you both operate venues. Is there, is there kind of a short-term, you know, streaming opportunity, kind of a fanless, guestless People are getting very, very creative. I liked what Naomi said about outdoor events, and I'm hoping that there can be some sort of streamlined process to, to help us. Like, I'd love to take over 
McLaren Park, which is right by my house, and like do some outdoor socially distanced events. There's um, venues like um, Riptide and Amato's who are doing outdoor concerts right now, but on a really small scale where they get to sell like their little cocktails to go. And, um, and it's really actually helping the neighborhoods to like have a positive outlook and the bands are playing for free just because it's like so awesome. And I think that we really just want clear guidelines and we want relaxed rules from the city. We want us, we, cause you're talking about with um, independent venues in San Francisco, a group of people that's very scrappy, that's been at war for a decade. And the fact that we still exist means that we know how to survive. We're going to survive, but it's going to take a lot more ingenuity than we're used to. So what, what we would like is just for there to be some kind of some give and take with uh with the city please let us you know not please don't let us lump us in with phase four reopening for big concert halls please let like someone with a type 47 license uh that has a, a kitchen perhaps we can open as a restaurant with restaurants if we follow all the guidelines you've set out instead of just saying if you are an entertainment venue you cannot open you know why not let us sort of adapt what what we are considered right now that's what I, that's what i'm hoping for that we, we just don't get we were the first to close and we don't want to be the last to reopen we want to we want to have an income so that we survive because it's tough i'll just jump on what lynn was saying there's a big difference between an eighteen thousand seat venue and the smaller venues um for sure and and much to what uh, Julia was saying, like this is a time for innovation and creativity, as odd as that sounds. And even in our world, uh, we have created what we're calling socially distanced manifest, seating manifest. So if I'm not, we're not headed that way in terms of Warriors games or any of the like Ariana Grande concerts, but there might be content in the future that might be interested in coming to Chase Center and doing it in a socially you know, distanced and responsible way. And so we just want to be ready for that. My message to the staff has just been, let's get ready because our business model has been disrupted. I uh, went through 9-11 and I saw how things changed before 9-11 and after 9-11. And so we, we jumped on it quick and we're trying to just be nimble and flexible and understand not that the way things used to be. Um, I, I hope we go back to that because people want to congregate. I think Julia was saying it's in our DNA to gather and be social and to enjoy things together. You, you see it on the beach, you see it in the park, you see it in our venues, you see it at our bars. Um, so it's going to come back. There's no doubt about that. It's just how can we minimize the collateral damage and how can we evolve our businesses along the way? Ben, um, just to pick up on something Lynn was saying. What does, what should um, all, the, all the members of the nightlife community be asking for? And should they be asking local government, state government? Where should they be kind of focusing on? Yeah, that's a great question. Am I muted? Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, that's a great question. I, you know, the first thing for me, I can tell you what I'm doing. So first of all, I, you know, I don't have an inherent mistrust of government. Um, I, tr I believe that the mayor and city hall has smarter uh, public health experts than what I can learn on Google. That's me, right? And so, um, you know, I do hear a lot of negativity and a lot of overthrow the government uh, speech come out of this. I think people are really understandably angry. They're feeling uh, terrified and they feel like 
um, they need to do something and how could somebody tell them to do something when they know better or whatever it is, right? Um, I don't have that, that, that's not my personal take. Um, I, I, I think that we're actually lucky here. We have leaders that actually care about nightlife. Um, it is not like that in other places, right? So uh, our mayor actually loves going out. She, she has talked about partying from the time I have known her for 10 years. We have multiple supervisors who have made nightlife like a, uh, an actual, um, like a pillar of what they stand for, which is incredible because from what I hear, I've been here about 20 years, but before my time here, that would be unheard of. Nightlife was seen as a, as a nuisance. So, you know, the first thing I say is, is, you know, advocate, but advocate in a positive way and, 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 and do so understanding that these, these, these people are making really difficult decisions, right? Like um, I have a, a preschooler, um, our preschool has been canceled. People rely on preschools to be open and, and summer camps in order to go to work, especially underserved communities. And they may prioritize preschool over bars, right? And we may have to, to swallow and say, you know what, you know, all of the people who have to work for a living need to go to work. And if they're at home taking care of their kid, they can't. So we need to just swallow it. So that's, you know, it's not to say we should sell off what's we mat what matters to us. We should very passionately advocate, but, um, but uh, we, we do need to understand, I think that these decisions are terrible. You know, it's a, um, I, I think uh, the, the term I've heard uh, from, from the Obama administration was that they eat shit sandwiches all day. That's all they do, right? And, and, and I think that our leaders are doing their best. Uh, you know, we may not agree with everything, but I think they're, they're doing their best, right? Um, that said, I think we need to really, really, really advocate on our behalf and for a few things. Um, uh, one of them is uh, this idea of outdoor space. Um, the lucky thing is we had, you know, the city administrator, Naomi, just talked about how important that is. So people care. They, the people at the highest ranks of City Hall are, are, are listening and, and are going for this. But we need to advocate firmly and strongly for it. And remember, the uh, general public in San Francisco has just gotten used to a very, very quiet ambient sound for the last two months, right? And they're used to a, a quiet that uh, maybe is, is something they haven't heard ever in San Francisco. And so when people empty out on the streets and there's somebody with a guitar playing or there's life on the streets, it, there's going to be sound that comes along with that. And we're going to have to advocate strongly for it because it's not going to be all uh, roses. And they're not going to greet us with roses um, and flowers around us. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I think is really important is um, alcohol is not the devil. And uh, there are groups in San Francisco who think that alcohol is the devil. There are supervisors right now who don't understand why anybody would drink alcohol or what the service it provides or, or the community of, of venues that serve alcohol. So, you know, it does seem like the city's going to let restaurants open before bars. Um, you know, small bars serve a really, really important service for their communities, for the economy, for the culture of San Francisco, whether it's something in, in Calle 24, uh, a Latinx bar, or somewhere in the Castro, or somewhere in Russian Hill, they're serving a really essential service to the community there. And we're gonna need to advocate for that because there's a lot of people who are, are gonna jump on this opportunity to shut down alcohol. And they're gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna use any excuse they can to try to shut it down. And again, we should not be uh, rude or upset, but we should be firm and uh, make our case really carefully. 
Um, so those, those are the two big things for me right now. I mean, they just, the, the ABC with a wave of their wand just removed restrictions that have been on us that we thought were set in, set in stone. And guess what? The city didn't burn down, right? Everything's fine, right? Okay, so a bunch of people went out in the marina this weekend. We can deal with that, right? Like we got to teach marina kids to put a mask on their face. You know, that's hard sometimes, but we got to do it, right? So, but anyway, the city's fine, right? So it, it, we should be questioning the orthodoxy that, have, that, that we've lived with for the last 20 years. We should be thinking outside of the box and we should be really pushing hard to, to try out things, new things and creative solutions. This is, this is a real time uh, experiment. For sure, we're getting a yeah. lot, of and we're gonna be fine. It's okay, everyone. It's look at this. We're we're doing delivery cocktails. Oh my god! Right? Oh, nobody. Everything's okay. What you know? Who who would have thought? Right? So, Lynn, were you gonna say something? Sorry. Can I piggyback on that real quick? Is that also as a venue? And I love my bars too. But as a venue, it's been made so that we can only make money by with bar sales. It's not like we went into this to to be to sell drinks, but there's a whole, the whole system is broken, which I'm hoping we can maybe re look at this later. But um, frankly, yeah, so to be, to uh, I see no difference between a restaurant opening, re food is more in, uh, essential than liquor for sure, but not eating in a restaurant. So I'm not sure why one gets prioritized over the other, as Ben said. And then I look at someplace like Vesuvio's in North Beach and I go, oh, they've got that little alley next to them. Perhaps they could allow them to put some tables out there because it's such a cramped little, little bar there. Yeah, and I hope that we don't lose even more of our bars because they're, they're as endangered as venues are right now. So thank you, Ben. So uh, Kim, what uh, what kind of solutions do you see for a big venue like the one you manage? Are, are we going to see like new technologies, new practices, new policies? We are, yes, you're gonna see all of that and more. Uh, there is a affiliation of all the arenas across the country for NBA, NHL, and so we're crowdsourcing, working together to come up with new plans. Uh, we, my, my team came up with 175 new action items that we potentially could take once we know the government's gonna tell us what our restrictions are, um, but we just wanted to be ready with those ideas. So I'm working with um, NBA fellow peers from other NBA arenas, um, other NHL arenas, because the number one thing that we do is provide a safe environment for guests to come to. You know, pre-COVID safety was about protecting from the, the um, intruder. Uh, now it's the invisible intruder in COVID. So we've created a health and hygiene department that's dedicated to disinfecting and sanitizing, not just cleaning anymore. It's taking it to that next level and then being accountable. And uh, we're just working on protocols uh, with, the, with the NBA and the NBA is working with um, infectious disease doctors and our medical team as well here on the grounds. So we've got a lot of people that are helping inform. We're just waiting. We're just getting ready and we're just waiting for the opportunity. And, and like everybody said, you know, we'll, we'll just see what happens. It's a, it's a hurry up and wait um, for, for us because we will, of everybody here, we will be the last ones out <laughs> to be, to emerge back into the sunlight. Right. That's right. As we go through the various phases, Lynn, um, how are we going to get people back to live music? Uh, how is that part of our culture going to kind of reassert itself as we do reopen? I just think that 
we'll adapt. And um, I mean, at least in the rock and roll world, we're dealing with a younger demographic who I think is a little bit more crazy in a good way. And like, you know, just maybe feeling more invincible than others might. Um, I just think it's so essential to mental health. It's also so essential to the identity of our city that it, this is going to be in our rear view mirror at some point, we're going to get back and we don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but it, we have to, because it's, it's, it's uh, ingrained in our, in our identity and our, our culture here in San Francisco. And Julia, you've, uh, you've obviously built a business on physical events. You've always had the capacity to kind of ticket uh, digital events, but um, how do you see, how is that, how are those two worlds going to merge in the future? Well, what we're seeing and, you know, what we, per we can't predict the future. And I, I tell the team that it's not our job to predict the future, but it is our job to prepare for anything. However, again, we get these sort of glimpses into how people are using the platform in any way they can to, to build their businesses and to keep communities together. And so far, we're seeing smaller events, smaller hyper-local events starting to emerge in countries where there has been an easing of the restrictions. Now, who knows what kind of shape that takes in the future, but it does give us an indication of something that we thought may be true as people sort of re-emerge and reconnect, which is that they want um, to be in places that they trust, either that uh, you know everybody's going to have the same sort of protocol on, on safety or they, um, you know, it's their beloved local venue or bar or restaurant. Um, so we're starting to see that take shape. It's very, very early days though. Um, however, I think that there's this, I think that there's this bridge between, you know, being able to produce content or produce live streams with a lower overhead cost and reach a broader audience as well as, you know, and, and use that to sort of, um, connect with a, a broader audience, extend your brand, and maybe subsidize revenue. Um, we're seeing online events be hosted more frequently with lower ticket prices. Um, and again, the growth has been, you know, nothing short of explosive in terms of, of people coming to the platform to use, to use Eventbrite, to market their online events and to, and to charge for them. I think that the, and I, and I'd be, curious to hear sort of uh, Lynn's experience, but I, I think one of the things that has been remarkable is just the outpouring of love and support that ticket buyers and who, you know, are fans and patrons of creators have shown during this time. We've seen a, a really big overwhelming response from ticket holders to donate their tickets back instead of requesting a refund if an event had to be canceled um, or taking a credit for a future event through a gift card um, or just above and beyond fundraising. I know um, one of my favorite venues, uh, Piano Fight, they held a, a really successful crowdfunding campaign and have created this sort of patronage of, of Piano Fighters membership. And, you know, I think that's just like, that power of community is stronger than ever. And how do we, the, what we're thinking about right now is how do we be the win behind the backs of, of our customers when restrictions do ease and we can get back together? How do we help um, drive trust with, with attendees? How do we help market events and reach a broader audience? How do we help you know reconnect those communities? Um, 
that's the, that's the work that's really fun, right? Versus reversing the engine, uh, you know, and, and, you know, doing some work around crisis management and refunds and all of the craziness that we've been thrown into. I think it's really about reimagining the future. And so we think that the, you know, smaller local events, outdoor events, and um, really like not underestimating the power of community uh, are going to be really big trends in not just the U.S., but all over the world. And, you know, I think what I'm hearing from everyone is that trust is going to be a huge component in bringing people back. And that's, that cuts across um, technology, that cuts across large venues. They might, you know, a large venue might be able to communicate a plan, you know, and, and deploy a lot of technology, while a small venue uh, relies much more on kind of the tightness of its community to reopen. So I think that... Uh, maintaining and building that trust is going to be something that carries us all forward um, as we get through this. I, I think we want to have some uh, time for questions um, from our audience and we've got, uh, we've got quite a few. Um, Lynn, we'll start with you. Um, uh, Dee Rubin is wondering um, how uh, you might operate your venue at 50% or 75% capacity limits. I think that's been a proposal that's been aired. Would that work for you? And how, how would that work? 50% um, would be would be great to start with. I would even start with 25%, get 50 people in there because um, so with social distancing in a small venue of our size is going to be a bit tricky because it's pretty small. So we're going to have to play it by ear. I think at first probably getting 50 people in is, is definitely a possibility. And we're looking at, um, you know, definitely changing from a, the last cash only venue to credit cards and sneeze guards. And for some reason, my mother-in-law is sending me a bunch of face shields that her friend made. And my partners want to buy a big atomizer for um, like spraying disinfectant around. And, you know, we will have ordering stations. Uh, most importantly, for any of the venues that we're talking about in San Francisco and bars, we have, we're uniquely qualified to take care of customers and like laying down the law. Like we're not going to have any trouble if someone comes up without a mask. We'll say very politely, you know, get the fuck out of here or take, take a mask, please. Yeah. I have some thoughts on that too. Um, yeah. So the perception of safety and real safety is going to be really, really important going forward. Um, but I do think there's business opportunity here. And at one point, a couple of weeks ago, I thought that I kind of held this secret and I wasn't going to tell anybody, but then I realized that everybody was thinking the same thing. So I could just say it. So um, it does seem like venues are going to be uh, limited at their capacity in some cases, very strictly. Um, there's going to be real opportunity to uh, essentially reserve space at a premium uh, for groups of people. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, jacking the price up and only the rich survive, but it means if you want space, you get it for a certain amount of time for a certain kind of set menu or set amount. Um, and actually, there's some business opportunity there for owners, because if you actually have reservations, which most bar owners don't run on reservations, but if you actually have, you can actually kind of project out sales and you have some visibility into what you're doing. So uh, one, my business partner, Mark DeVito, described it as we're all in the bowling alley business now. So um, there's lanes and people are going to use them. And then you spray down the shoes and you clean out the 
bowling balls and you move them out and then the next group comes in. And I do see that coming and I see actual opportunity there, not to paint a rosier picture than things are. We're in abject destruction right now, but there may be a little hope in this idea of, of reserving space. And uh, that takes me to another technology related question. Uh, Stella Yu asks um, if contact tracing uh, now, this is the, the concept that, you know, if someone gets exposed to the coronavirus, that all of their contacts in like the past two weeks, I think it usually is, get alerted that they've possibly been exposed. Um, so Stella is asking, uh, and I think this might be best addressed by Julia or, you know, and Kim, would you consider putting into ticketing apps, you know, if, a, if an event organizer wanted it as a requirement, uh, some interaction with tracing uh, tracing apps? You know, I think that um, when I when I considered uh, this question, two things came to mind. One is that there are contract tracing technologies that are being, you know, brought to market by Google and Apple, and um, there will be a great opportunity for us to integrate using our API into any type of tracing app. And so that will definitely be on our post-COVID roadmap. Um, but the second thing is that a ticket effectively is a contact, right? So you, you, you when you're scanning in a ticket, the benefit of, of having a ticketed event or a ticketed venue is that you can scan in uh, using the barcode app, uh, anybody walks in the door, and you know, you can know when they came and, um, you know, we could, we can do that in reverse. Uh, and you could check people out. So I think there's ways to really create that sense of tracing but i also think that this is a bit different which it's it's you know combining the benefit of the of the database technology that's being created for contract tracing and integrating it with the event data and so i certainly see that as being something that we can um that we can support on on the platform and um you know and and as as this becomes something that is adopted or is that is widely known to be a gate to opening a venue or an event I mean, we're going to do anything we can to support getting people back together. The thing I can add to that is, um, I know contact tracing and testing being widely available and not taking from others, like it needs to be the whole community needs to have easy access to testing. Those are two big hurdles uh, that I think in particular, we're watching what's happening in that space because it's going to, for us in particular, with the number of people we have at an event, it's going to be important to watch that, I will say I've gotten, I weekly, I get a lot of vendors and entrepreneurs that are rushing into this space, um, offering some new opportunities. So there's a lots of American ingenuity uh, that is happening around the contact tracing. Uh, Julia said it well, you know, um, so I think this is one of those where you just have to wait and see what ends up um, coming through. It's, it's good to hear Julia say, you know, Apple and Google are really working hard on this in this space. You know, it, it, then there's privacy concerns, and that's a, another hurdle for that as well. So there's a lot to go, uh, a lot of runway we have to make up to get past those two. But for us in particular, because we're so big, and to get back to our normal is going to, those are two criteria that we've heard mentioned a few times. We're watching this space. I'm hopeful that American ingenuity um, and something can make this a possibility for us. Um, because I think it just will help us do that. We've watched uh, South Korea. We've watched other, we're watching other parts of the world and seeing what they're doing. Um, 
other parts of the world have very different cultures and very different things that are they will accept. Um, but we're still watching it to see, um, you know, Disney in Shanghai and what they do and opened in Shanghai. You know, some of those things are going to come here, not the things, you know, that would that won't be allowed by American culture. But it's been fascinating to watch their opening and what they're doing and how they're monitoring it um, and how they're ramping up their capacity. So um, we've just got we're just keeping our eyes open everywhere and contact tracing is going to be a, a key component of that. And I, I just haven't seen somebody that's got the magic bullet yet, but we'll see. This is a a unique aspect, I think, of American business culture. Uh, everyone seems to get sued at some point. Uh, there's a question uh, about um, venue insurance. Carrie Gray is asking Ben and Lynn if they've heard anything about kind of the cost of liability insurance. I'm sorry if I'm bringing up a sore subject. I know this is painful for a lot of small businesses to grapple with. Um, well, Insurance is not covering anything COVID-related, as far as I know, for anybody um, that's through this. Um, liability moving forward, that's a really good question. Are they going to uh, raise our rates because we are more liable for potentially making someone sick? I don't know. That's something that you're gonna, is going to work out I think, on, a, on, a, on the city level. Um, but what I do want is for perhaps the city to work on, I know they have said that we don't have to pay our premiums for the times that we're closed, but even if we're allowed to reopen with a limited capacity, maybe they could work with the insurance companies to make sure we don't have to pay full rate like for until things are back to normal. I'm not sure if that answers that question. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I think Ricardo Lara actually has yes. made a number of moves for um, not just personal insurance, but business insurance. So the state insurance commissioner um, has been fairly active on the issue. Uh, ben, any thoughts on kind of uh, just to, to add on to what Lynn said about insurance reform? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's I think it's a state thing. And, you know, we're hoping that they'll have some minimum, you know, if you, if you, if you have a minimum uh, set of protections in place, then you're, then you're not liable. Um, I actually would expect that would come because I don't think they want out of control lawsuits around this. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more focused locally than on the state stuff. I know the Golden Gate Restaurant Association is, is kind of laser focused on that right now. So um, hopefully they can keep advocating for it. I think uh, there are a lot of great questions and hopefully maybe we can uh, continue like an open chat after, uh, afterwards uh, during the uh, silent DJ part of things. Phil Derby has a great question. Are folks going to come out to events? Are they going to be hesitant to join crowds? I think Kim, you talked about this a little. It's kind of part of human nature. It sounds like you're actually yeah. pretty bullish that people will, will resume that part of their lives. I tend to be an optimist anyway, but I, there is some data to back up that optimism and it comes from Live Nation, which is uh, probably the world's largest event promoter and somebody we do a lot of business with. They did a survey about a week ago and 90% of people said they were looking forward to coming back to an event within six months. Um, and there was uh, 70%, 70, I think it was like 72 or 73%. Uh, said they were looking forward to coming back to a sporting event. So, you know, that's more than 50%. And so there's data to back this up. The other thing is uh, they've, 
in terms of refunds, and I know Ticketmaster and refunds, that's a hot button and Live Nation's a hot button and that's, that's, those are their policies. Um, but the good news there is they've only had 10% of um, folks ask for refunds to date across, across all their shows. So like everybody thought the world was gonna fall and the, and the sky was falling. So it's sort of good to hear that um, it's only 10%, maybe that grows to 30%, but that means 70% are still intending to come. So I take those as signs of, of optimism. It, it's just about can't, you know, again, I go back to, we just have to try and minimize the collateral damage between this moment in time and the time we can be back to that environment. And, and, and um, Julia said it, we have to evolve our businesses. We have to be nimble. We just have to be ready. Can I, can I just end, I, we, we have to go here. I know, Owen, and I want to let you do it, but can, can we just end on a, on a note of hope? Is that, can we try? I, I think Kim had a good note of optimism there. Yeah, that's helpful. Kim, what are your thoughts? I, I just have two things I want to say before we go here. So one is, I, I actually think we're poised for a renaissance in the city here. I think the city got away from what a lot of us loved about it uh, in the last five, 10 years. And it, it just became kind of sterile and the art and the culture that we love so much seem to be disappearing. And I think we have a real opportunity right now to not have nightlife and entertainment and culture be like a part of the rebuilding, but actually be like the economic driver of bringing our commercial corridors back. And, and I think that's, I think we, if we fight hard, we have a chance at that. Um, and that's what I'm out there fighting for. Of course, right now it's horrible, but, but that's what we might be able to look forward to. And, and along with that, this idea of localization, which Audrey Joseph um, was what brought to my attention, which is if, if major acts and bands aren't touring the world for the next year, um, we're going to have to rely on local, local groups to do it. And a local group that maybe was never able to play a place like the Fillmore, a part of the Chase Center, or Bottom of the Hill might, might have an opportunity now that they didn't have before. And so this will be, maybe there's a chance to really bring back up a real local music and culture scene. And I think we're poised for it. It's just, we got to get through this really terrible phase right now. I would just chime in that if history is any lesson to us, which it shows us time and time again, we can learn something by, by reading the history books. Uh, the Roaring Twenties, we're sort of entering our, our our own version of that 100 years later after the last great pandemic. And, you know, if you look at, at that renaissance of art and music and live entertainment, um, I, would, I would build on what Ben said and say that I do think that this is going to be marked by local artists, local community, and that events and live events and being together in real life is a staple of our society. So there is no doubt in my mind that we'll be back together soon. Well, that is very hopeful. Something optimistic, too. <laughs> um, I, I will be killed by Parker if I don't say this, but the Independent Venue Alliance is a new organization that's growing. And we have a Because the Night webathon on May 30th through Light Rail Studios, which is to, um, to give uh, big donors an opportunity to help local independent venues. So please tune into that May 30th, Light Rail Studios, Facebook, or YouTube. Thank you. Shameless plug. Excellent. Well, I know uh, I need to hand things over to Dory Kamenong. I just want to thank our panelists, Ben Blyman, Kim Stone, Lynn Schwartz, and Julia Hartz. Thank you all for your time. And Dory, it's over to you. Thank you, guys. Hi, everybody. My name is Dory. I'm the Vice President of the Entertainment Commission. 
As we began planning today's summit in early March, we were very cognizant of the collective and very personal losses our industry was set to experience. We know each of you have felt the seismic impact on your businesses, but we also know you, our city's nightlife and entertainment folks. Y'all are scrappy, gritty, GSD, DIY, go home or go hard. A cast of misfits who work hard, play hard, and love hard. Each of you are fighting and innovating your business practices for your survival. And we're all on this unexpected and unwelcome rite of passage called COVID-19. We're each experiencing a collective and very personal evolution and forced to reimagine how we come together, how we do business, how we live, and how we make sense of all of this. And as all the questions of how launched, we thought of who. Who has the industry chops that would be the most helpful to our business leaders? Who has overcome these monster challenges and risen from the ashes? Who could bring meaningful hope and remind us of our resilience? And of course, I thought of Chip. I met Chip during my tenure at Glide, and for over a decade, I've had the honor to be one of the many grasshoppers to his master po. I shared seats with this epic leader, and he's superhuman an auditorium seat, a bar stool, a church pew, a yoga mat. He's a New York Times best-selling author, the founder of JDV Hospitality, and the hospitality maverick who helped Airbnb founders turn their startup into a global hospitality brand. In Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, he shares his unexpected journey at midlife from CEO to intern learning about tech as the head of global hospitality and strategy while also mentoring the CEO. He's the founder of the Modern Elder Academy, a new roadmap for midlife. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Chip Conley. Right there, there we go. <laughs> let's make sure we got a video. Hi, hey. Chip. <laughs> I'm coming to you from my bed. <laughs> Dory, you should just, you should keep going. You were like, you're so damn good at this. Um, thank you. Thank no, you. I'm not. <laughs> uh, you did a great job. So, um, wow, I'm, I'm so honored to be with everybody. Uh, I really literally am coming to you from my bed. This is my headboard, my uh, Alabrijas Mexican spirit animal uh, headboard here in, in Baja. Um, I wish I could give everybody a individual and collective hug right now because I know what you're going through. Uh, although this is worse than anything I've ever seen or we've ever seen before. Um, and I know that part of what's going on is just the jumble of emotions. Um, having been an entrepreneur now for 33 years, uh, I, 34 years, um, I get it. I get that sometimes it, you just feel the pain and suffering. Other days it's anxiety. Other days it's anger. Um, and most, most days it's just confusion. And it's like, I don't even know what to make of it all. So what I'm gonna to try to do in the next 10 minutes or so, 10 to 12 minutes, is to try to help you understand collectively how to understand your emotions as an entrepreneur, as a leader, et cetera, um, and, and why that's important now. Uh, and I'm saying this, I'm not your psychologist, I'm not an armchair psychologist, I guess I am, but I'm saying this more from the place of knowing that we are the emotional thermostats. Those of us who are leaders in whatever capacity we are the emotional thermostats for those we're leading, for those who are around us. Um, we don't, we're not a thermometer. We actually set the climate and set the temperature. And the higher you are in your organization or in your group of people, 
whether it's just your friends or family, you have even a bigger impact on the contagious nature of our emotions. Um, I've learned this from the dot-com bust in 9-11, from the Great Recession, from the San Francisco earthquake in 1989. And I'm going to give you three equations, uh, what I call emotional equations, that I think will serve you well during this time as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Um, the first one I want to just uh, give you is despair equals suffering minus meaning. And I think that Dory and the team are going to actually send these out to you later. So you can write these down if you want, but if I go too quickly, uh, just know that they'll be coming to you. So despair equals suffering minus meaning. Um, my favorite book of all time is a book by Viktor Frankl um, called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, if you think you're going through a difficult time right now, and you probably are, you're, you're not going through the time that man was going through as, as a bunch of other people were as well. Um, he was in a concentration camp in World War II as a Jewish psychologist. Um, and if you distill down the most, most famous book on meaning ever written, his book called Man's Search for Meaning, it comes down to basically this equation, that when there's a lot of suffering going on, there's two, that's the constant in life. The two variables are despair and meaning. And so the question is, how do you actually create, create more meaning in your life when you're full of despair? Uh, because let me do the math for you, like this emotional equation. So if you have eight, which is despair, equals 10 minus two, 10 being suffering, two being uh, meaning, if you could actually increase the meaning from two to six, the way the math works, if 10 uh, suffering is a constant, is that despair comes down from eight to four. So how do you do that? How do you find meaning in a shitty time like this? Well, let me tell you what I did initially when I started Joie de Vivre with the Phoenix Hotel, my first hotel of the 52 boutique hotels we created over my 24 years of being founder and CEO. The first one was the Phoenix. I, like, was 26 years old in the Tenderloin, didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, and it wasn't that long after the Phoenix started uh, that the, the San Francisco earthquake happened in uh, 1989, started in 1987. Um, before the earthquake happened, I had created something called the Wisdom Book. And literally, it was a little journal. And um, on some weekends, I would write in the journal, like in bullet points, what did I learn that week? When the earthquake happened in 89, October 89, man, was, there was no hotel business for, for a few months. Uh, and so I didn't have any money. I didn't know what to do. It was my only hotel. Uh, and so I picked up that wisdom book, which I'd only been using sparingly. And every single weekend, I would write down in bullet points, what did I learn that week? And if it was a particularly bad week, there were more bullet points and there were more lessons. Because the real message for this first equation is, Meaning, if you can create some meaning, some learning, some wisdom, something that you feel like you got out of this, even if it's a painful lesson, you can carry that forward. Because as many leaders have said for a long time, sometimes they learn the, their best lessons in the worst times. All right, the second equation um, is an equation around anxiety, <laughs> perfectly timed for the times we're in. 98% um, of anxiety comes from two sources, according to this, the, so, uh, the social psychologists who specialize in anxiety. It's uncertainty and powerlessness. Um, so if you know that those are the two, and it's, it's not uncertainty time, uh, plus powerlessness, it's times. Because when you have both uncertainty and powerlessness, it's combustible. So what do you do to solve for that? Um, you solve for that by actually creating an anxiety balance sheet. And when you get the materials on this, uh, you'll see a link to my, my daily blog called Wisdom Well, 
where I wrote, I, I said, here's how you create an anxiety balance sheet. Basically, you figure out what's the thing you're anxious about. Okay, my club's closed. I have no idea when it can open anymore. My landlord's, you know, wanting me to pay rent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, make a list of what do you know, and then make a list of what you don't know. Then make a list of what can you influence, and then make a list of what you can't you influence. So in essence, two balance sheets, one related to uncertainty, certainty versus uncertainty, and one related to powerlessness versus powerfulness. When you actually take all of this crap in your head and you put it on paper and you start to acknowledge there are some things you do know and there are some things you can influence, it starts to open the door to the fact that you feel a little bit more certainty and maybe a little more powerfulness. And I, I don't want to overemphasize this point because I would say at this st stage of where we are in <clears throat> the pandemic, it's particularly painful, this one. But um, over time, I think creating clarity uh, around certainty and power powerfulness is a really important thing, not just for you, but for your team as well. And then the third equation I'm going to share um, is one that's a happier one. I have a despair one, an anxiety one, and then the third one's about happiness. I went to um, Bhutan in 2009 to study the Gross National Happiness Index. For those of you who don't know it, Bhutan in 1972 became the first country in the world <clears throat> to basically say, we're not focused on GNP, and now it's called GDP, like gross domestic product. <clears throat> we're focused on GNH, gross national happiness. And they started looking for measuring tools to understand how do you measure something <clears throat> that's as, as intangible as happiness. And um, after having spent a, a week, a week and a half there in Bhutan, I came back with an equation that ultimately led to a TED talk I gave in 2010. Um, and the whole premise of this is that happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. Let me unpack that uh, equation for a moment. Um, wanting what you have means gratitude. <clears throat> to want what you have means you appreciate what you have. It means that you actually are, a, you are not so focused on the future or that what you haven't gotten yet or what you may lose. You're focusing on this moment on what you do have, uh, whether it's your health, whether it's your love of your family, whether it's a brand um, of a business that you've created that still is going to live on, um, whether it's your reputation, et cetera. There are things you have um, that you can actually hold on to. The bottom of that equation is not wanting what you have, it's having what you want. To have what you want means you go strive for something you currently don't have. The American culture and whole premise is based upon that. And it's the pursuit of happiness. To pursuit is to chase something with hostility. <laughs> so do we chase happiness with hostility? Yes, we do occasionally. So the base, the bottom of that pyramid, the bottom of that equation is gratification. So in some ways, all happiness is, is gratitude divided by gratification. And at this point, just know that gratification is something not to focus on right now. Focus on gratitude, because if you do, you're gonna actually be happier. Doesn't mean you're necessarily gonna be any more profitable, successful, uh, or closer to even be able to pay your bills. But it is actually a step toward, toward creating happiness. And actually, I'm a big believer that happiness creates success as opposed to success creating happiness. Last thought, and then I'm done. Um, you know, failure is an option. And I'm not saying this to depress you. I'm just telling you this because it's the truth. Failure is an option. And I have had a number of failures over my history as a restaurateur, a hotelier, and 
owning spas. I own Kabuki Springs and Spa. Who wants to get a massage right now and hang out in a Japanese communal bath? I still own that business now for 22, 23, 22 and a half years now. Um, maybe it should be a nightclub. <laughs> um, bottom line is uh, sometimes a failure is, can be dressed up to look like a noble experiment. Um, long ago, 1998, um, Joie de Vivre, my company, created the, uh, the, the first boutique campground um, called Costa Noa. This is seven years before the, uh, the word glamping had ever even been uh, um, coined. And of course, Costa Noa is not exactly a glamping place. It's, it's a little more middle, middle class. But if you've been, ever been there, it's between, halfway between Santa Cruz and Half Moon Bay on Highway 1. And we put so much love and care and energy into creating the place. And it launched actually relatively well in, two, in 1998. But by 2000 and 2001, the dot-com bust came along and all of our weekday business was gone. And we still had weekend business, but you can't make a business run based upon two days a week in a seven day a week business, unless you're some nightclubs. Um, but we couldn't do that at Costa Nova. And ultimately I had to sell that business for 10 cents on the dollar. I thought of it as a failure, but today I look at it as a noble experiment because I learned so much from that experience that I could take forward when we opened the Hotel Vitali and decided to have a yoga studio up on the top floor because we learned at Costa Noa, you know, people, business travelers wanted, especially business travelers in groups, wanted uh, group yoga. So in sum, you are not your business. You are a human being. Your business is a business. A business is subject to the fluctuations of the market, uh, to a potential economic depression. But just because we are in a serious recession that may become a depression, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go into an emotional depression. Um, you are a constantly evolving human being, just like me. Um, if you're not constantly changing, um, then something's going wrong. I would finish by just saying, for those of you who have never read it, read uh, the poet Rumi's poem, The Guest House. The guest house is a poem about the fact that emotions are going to come through us, just like the weather comes through the sky. Um, the rain doesn't stay for 20 or 40 or 60 days in a row. It comes and it goes just like the sun does. But the emotions we're going to have um, are just, just as Rumi had 750 years ago. The best thing we can do is to let them just come through us, welcome them, whether they're a good or a bad emotion, and then let them run through us and move forward with our, biz our business. And knowing that as a human, we're gonna get through this and probably on the other side of this, we're not just gonna be a better human, but we're probably gonna be a better entrepreneur and leader as well. So with that, I'm gonna give it back to the team and just say, thanks for letting me join you from Baja. Love you all. I totally, totally get where you're at right now and have a lot of respect for your resilience. Hey, Chip. Hello, Maggie. Thank you so much. Wow, that was really inspiring and helpful. Stay human. Michael Fronti, stay human. Also, I love your headboard. I need to get oh, me thank one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your uh, Pura Vida chill vibes to all of our anxious minds during this time. I think we needed that. Thank, thank you. you. Um, all right, I'm just going to wrap up here. I'm so humbled by all of our speakers and participants today. Would you believe it? We had about 600 people watching our virtual summit. I'm actually, I'm astounded by that. 
Um, today we heard Mayor Breed and our public health officer, Dr. Tomas Aragon, about the latest in San Francisco's response to COVID-19. We heard from our city administrator, Naomi Kelly, the director of our office in economic, uh, of economic and workforce development, always a mouthful, Joaquin Torres, and our city's chief ec uh, economist, Ted Egan, about the impacts COVID-19 has had on our city, as well as our local nightlife and entertainment industry. We also heard from a pretty incredible panel of entertainment and nightlife representatives about the future of our industry. And those are ranging from small business owner and the president of our commission, Ben Blyman, as well as owner of indie live music venue, Bottom of the Hill, Lynn Schwartz, all the way to the general manager, manager of our brand new arena at Chase Center, Kim Stone and the CEO and co-founder of a platform that serves a community of nearly 1 million event creators like yourselves around the world, Julia Hartz of Eventbrite. And finally, we heard from thought leader Chip Conley in his keynote address about themes of despair, anxiety, that feeling of powerlessness we all have right now, but also happiness and a path forward to gratitude as it relates to coping with this unique and challenging situation. So thank you again so much to all of our participants and our panelists for being a part of this today. I'm so impressed by all of you and I'm really grateful to everyone for tuning in. Our entertainment industry is tough. You are fighters, and I know that all of you will do everything it takes to survive this. Your businesses are so much more than physical spaces. They hold the memories of our collective experience as human beings, and it is all of you who create that feeling in all of us. And we're going to do everything in our power we can to support your recovery from this. A huge thank you again to our co-host of today's event and moderator of our first panel, Manny Ucuchiel, and Sam Favela for handling our technology needs. Again, I, there's no way I could have done this without either of you. I have a few key reminders before we end today's virtual summit. Uh, the Entertainment Commission will send out a newsletter this week to recap on what you heard today. So if you have not previously signed up for our mailing list, please visit our website to sign up and receive updates from our office. Um, again, our summit was recorded today, so we will include a link to that in our newsletter, and we will post it online later this week in case you missed or want to rewatch any of it. I personally am looking forward to rewatching it um, so that I can take more of a participant view uh, or attendee view of it. We also encourage you to fill out the nightlife and entertainment survey that we put out in the last couple of weeks. We uh, have kept that open. It's in several languages and we're collecting this anonymous information about your business's economic status so that we can share it with some of the leaders that were on this call today. Uh, we've received over 130 responses so far, but we'd really love to see more. This information is really helpful, uh, and we're going to share it with our city's economic recovery task force, which both Ben Blyman and I are um, participants on. Uh, we also encourage all of you to participate in the Dear SF digital storytelling campaign by posting a love letter to San Francisco about your own business or a business you love and support on social media using the hashtag DearSF. So next up, without further ado, is our virtual uh, happy hour. Uh, Manny and Sam are going to put up a slide momentarily, I think, that has the link to our happy hour Zoom. Uh, but the link is pretty easy if you're paying attention. It is tinyurl.com 
forward slash SF virtual happy hour. Okay, you can also find this link on our Eventbrite page or in your registration email. Thank you again to Bar and Restaurant McCondre and my dear friends and owners, Aaron Paul and Jake Roberts for hosting our virtual happy hour. Aaron will be playing music to get the dance party going. And just a reminder that you will all need to be on mute so that you can enjoy the music, but your faces will actually be visible this time around and you'll be able to use both group and direct chat to continue the conversation. So go and grab your favorite beverage. Um, here's my uh, bare bottle beer. I decided to go and grab it during a break and head on over to the next Zoom. So that concludes our summit agenda for today. And thank you again for joining us.